Your file shows that you've been interacting regularly with Jordan 2 Delta. There's no law against friendship. No. No, we encourage it, but obviously proximity could become a concern. I know the rules of proximity. What's troubling you, Lincoln? Well, it's... It's just... All right, Tuesday night is tofu night. And I'm asking myself, who decided that everyone here likes tofu in the first place? And what is tofu anyway? And why can't I have bacon? I line up every morning, and I'm not allowed any bacon for my breakfast. And uh, tell me, let's talk about all the white. Why is everyone wearing white all the time? It's impossible to keep clean. I'm walking around, I, get, I always get the gray stripe. I never get any color, and I hand it in to be cleaned, and, and someone cleans it and folds it neatly back in my drawer, but who? Who is that person? I don't know. I just, I want to know answers, and I, and, I, and I wish that there was more. More? Yeah, more than just waiting to go to the island. Hey, what's with Dr. Merrick? I mean, why does he act like he's got a filing cabinet shoved up his ass? <laughs> yeah. Uh, it's called a god complex. All doctors are like that. They think they know everything. Jones, do you ever get bored doing this? Doing what? This. I never really thought about it. I think about it a lot. About what? This boring job. I mean, what are we doing here anyway? Well, they say we're feeding the nutrient lines. We eat food. Food's got to have vitamins, right? It's good for us. You don't ever wonder about anything? Where do these tubes go? They start there, and they go right there. What are you doing? Men aren't supposed to be Listen, in Listen, you gotta trust me, all right? I saw them. Who? Lima and Starkweather, they're dead. What? Yeah, they killed her, and they cut him open. They Stop! Were Stop! Her. I wanna go back to my room. But you can't, don't you understand? I think they're gonna kill you. I'm going to the island. Jordan, there is no island! No. Come on! Issued for Lincoln 6 Echo. Anyone coming in contact with him will be quarantined. They lie, Mac. Why do they lie to us? Tell me. Keep you from knowing what you are. What we are? What are we? Oh, man, why do I gotta be the guy who tells the kids there's no Santa Claus? Okay, look, you're, uh... uh well, you, you're not like me. Um, I mean, you're not, uh, human. I, I mean... You're human, but you just, you're not real. You're not like a real person, like me. You're clones. You're copies of people out here in the world. What? Clones? What? Copies? What are you talking Why? about? Okay, you put stuff in them. Backpacks for boys, purses for girls. Understand? We're not idiots. Well, excuse me, miss. I'm so smart, I can't wait to go to the island. So when did killing become a business for you? Oh, it's so much more than that. I have discovered the holy grail of science, Mr. Laurent. I give life. The Agnates. They're simply tools, instruments. They have no souls. 
The possibilities are endless here. In two years' time, I will be able to cure children's leukemia. How many people on Earth can say that, Mr. Laurent? I guess just you and God. That's the answer you're looking for, isn't it? here that pulls together some of the loose threads from the last few episodes and I even though I'm calling it like my thesis or um, what I'm putting together I don't want to suggest that this was like pre-planned that I had some thesis to start with <laughs> it's just more that as I'm learning from uh, Peterson's work and E. Michael Jones work around Logos how it's tying together with my experience and what's happening in the world. So I'm trying to piece those pieces together. Um, the two films I talk about are The Island with uh, Ewan McGregor and Scarlett Johansson, uh, maybe from probably 10 years ago, and uh, House of Sand in the Fog with Ben Kinsley and Jennifer Connelly. And that's the main body, but I tie together some threads at the beginning. And for some reason, at some point, I say get escalated. I was talking about one of this, one of the plot lines of get escalated. Of course, I meant that's when things really escalate. But anyway, I have no idea why sometimes they come out funny like that. Uh, please enjoy uh, and connect with us. Um, appreciating the feedback. Thanks. Take care. I'm Neil McDougall, and as painful as it is, Logos is definitely rising. like to uh, use this podcast to just kind of pull some of the threads together from the last couple of weeks and try and make a coherent case of what my fundamental thesis I'm putting forward here. And then I've got kind of some loose ends, threads, I'd like to, just a few bullet points, and then I'd like to um, use a couple of films. One of those was at the beginning there with The Island. That was The Island with Ewan McGregor and Scarlett Johansson which was like jam-packed with uh, predictive programming. But it also had some redeeming redeeming messages in there as well. So we'll talk about that. And the other one is uh, House of Sand and Fog, which um, was a tragedy and 
in the most true sense of the Greek tragedy <laughs> traditions, but there were some serious messages of redemption in there as well. So I'll, I'll tie these threads together, then we'll talk about the two films, and then I'd like to leave off with just a fantastic recent experience that E. Michael Jones had. It was interracial, it had some uh, spiritual crisis themes all wrapped together. I think it happened um, sometime in May, so I'll, I'll include that at the end. It's, a, it's, a, it's heartwarming and, and inspiring as well. So my fundamental premise is, has two, two parts. One is uh, the first part I don't think anyone's going to have any problem with. I think most of us have kind of accepted that part. But there's a corollary that I think uh, is just something that people will have to chew on and experiment with their free will <laughs> with. But uh, so the, the fundamental premise that I've been building towards is this idea of Logos. And it's... Uh, it's perfectly exemplified in like the AA, the AA experience, where you accept that you're that there's a higher power. You kind of admit that you're powerless with the problems in your life. Your life have got, has gotten out of control, and then you pursue order in your life through truthful speech with a group of other people that are doing the same thing together. And, um, and that is essentially the antidote to a spiritual crisis, the antidote to too much chaos in your life. And I think most of us have had enough experience or seen uh, like some of the worst cases being saved by that methodology that I think we accept that there's something, there's something real and helpful there, like I mentioned in the last episode with psychotherapy. Same thing. When the therapist and the client are pursuing um, the best long-term interests of the client through, through precise, truthful speech, good things eventually come out of that. Right action eventually comes out of that. So I think that part, most people can accept that there's something there. <laughs> the second part is more difficult and so that's the corollary so peterson's subtitle his book was uh, rules for life 12 rules for life and his next book i think is 12 more rules for life which he's i i gather he's working on but the subtitle of his book was an antidote to chaos and he had enough trouble with controversy with the mainstream and pushback and oh my god he was just like flying in the face of resistance constantly but I guess what I'm putting forward that we can all test with our own free will is that he was, he was uh, hedging in that subtitle. He was calling it an antidote to chaos, but it's starting to look more and more to me like it's the only antidote to chaos, the one and only. And I think in different kind of ways, he was saying that in different channels. Um, but he never, he never, he never came right out and said that Logos is the only antidote to chaos, but, but he was saying that in, in different ways in a lot of different aspects. So his first appearance, uh, pro this was probably his coming out party for, in terms of mainstream, uh, in terms of worldwide was on Rogan. He's probably got something like 10 million views or more, but his first appearance on Rogan, he, he made a, a fantastic explanation 
of the process of Logos and how if you're truly engaging with another person, first of all, if it's if you're talking about something serious, one or both of you are going to utter some hate speech in the process. But also, if you're, um, if you're truly engaged in that process, you can feel yourself letting go of your bad ideas. Another, you can feel your ego death of your bad ideas through the process. And you're both better and better oriented and better aligned towards right action in the world when that process is over. So he had a fantastic explanation in that, uh, that first Rogan experience. So I'll try and put the, put the link on the podcast page. Um, now, in terms of a few bullet points of looseness, so that's the premise and the corollary that I, that I said I'd put forward. Now, in terms of a few loose ends, um, obviously the news cycle has changed, and we're into like a what looks like purely the Joker type uh, chaos atmosphere. Um, and my guess is that. Something like this was always planned, but the timing was basically like the whole illness story was just falling apart at the seams. And and all the attention was actually starting to head towards the actual villains. And uh, and so now they're stirring up racial tensions. And they, the, in most places that I have lived and worked, there are tensions, tribal tensions of some kind right underneath the surface. So you do... you. Make something on on uh, made for TV on TV that's going to provoke those tensions. People are already right now frustrated. They're hungry. They want it. They're really pissed off at somebody. <laughs> um, it's really not that difficult to inflame these frustrations. So that's what's happening right now. There's agent provoca- provocateurs all over the place stirring these up. And then once once some violence happens, it can it can take on a life of its own. But I've seen a lot of restraint so far in what I've seen. Anyway, in terms of loose ends, I've, I haven't mentioned this, but you know that slogan, we're all in this together? Uh, that is a mockery, in-your-face mockery. That's the governments and the media and the major corporations and the major medical quote-unquote authorities telling us that they're all in it together. I know maybe that sounds dark, but if you just look at the consistency, the emails, like it's like unbelievable coordination worldwide around something that's been proven to be a complete hoax. It's just a completely typical, even mild flu season. I used the term mind fuckery before, and I've used the term consciousness. I think those two are inverse. So the the, the more unfucked you can make your mind the more aware and the closer you are towards consciousness. So like I think in the new age, they give us this, this concept that enlightenment is like sort of floating in the lotus position above it all. But really, I think enlightenment is like unloading your baggage that's keeping you from seeing things how they really are, which is all of the bad ideas you've taken on board through your entire life experience. What I'm seeing, and I, I saw I saw a lot of this from the very beginning, but it's just getting more and more severe and more and more like shocking to me how people can just be completely split down the middle. Like, like deep down, they don't really believe it, but they go out in public and they act like they believe it in terms of the, the pandemic. So it's like they just saw the most incredible 
coordination of, of media and government and medical authorities around the world trying desperately to pull the wool over their eyes, locking people down, killing economies, killing the food supply, and they want to just go back like they never saw anything. So it keeps reminding me of that, that joke, um, other than that, Mrs. Lincoln, how was the play? Like they're engineering an unbelievable schism. For anybody that wants to still trust an authority, they're going to be split right down the middle. Because it's clear as day, the authority, none, none of the authorities, quote unquote, that we've been tr trusting, um, have our best interests at heart. And yet people are running back to authority to continually ask for more authority to protect them from the boogeyman that has been created. We have a new boogeyman now. But the same thing with Kennedy. The Kennedy, same with Vietnam. These major, major traumatic events in 9-11 that you see right down right in front of you it sort of traumatizes you and to the point where a lot of people just don't want to look at it anymore they don't still want to understand it it's just too dark and too too brutal um and so there's like a whole generation of people that were split right down the middle when the kennedy thing happened you know and um and so that divides people that's just a massive blind spot that just prevents people from talking uh vietnam people are on different sides you know this whole this, the schism they've got in the U.S., the red state, blue state thing, it's just unbelievable. Um, but this current situation is starting to be so crazy that the people are starting to drop those barriers. And that's really where the, the progress can, can come through. But once, once you witness bad faith, once you witness that the channels that you're trusting have the, the exact opposite of your best interests at heart, that's it. you got to switch them off. I mean, you got to never trust them again, right? I mean, that's, that's to me, the, but people are so reluctant to trust themselves and trust their own truthful speech and trust their own dialogue with their neighbors and their community that they keep running back to the quote-unquote authorities. So um, once you witness that bad faith, that's time to, to question everything that's coming to us from, from authority. In a future talk or a future podcast, I would like to get into this concept of a double bind because it's sort of well known. The games that get played with celebrities and musicians and cops and military and now the medical staff are the same thing. They get propped up on a pedestal so they start to get the adoration of their friends and family. Then they're going to work and they're not seeing what everybody's seeing on the news. Then they can't, they don't want to like ruin their celebrity status among their friends and family and come back and explain what's really happening. So they get caught. They get caught in this lie. And, and everybody just wants them to carry on pretending that there's, they're a hero that's gone off to save the world by carpet bombing babies in Syria or whatever, wh whatever the role is. There's an article that really um, tears that apart. So we'll get into that in the future. But it's, it's called a double bind and it's a deliberate schism for the people that we're propping up on pedestals. On that, if there is a, an order follower out there, police or military, that's starting to have a bad conscience about the organization that you're a part of and where the orders are coming from and what they're all about, to me, the easiest, the easiest move right now, I know it's, it's awkward and difficult to walk away from, from all that heroism that you've been sold, but I mean, there's like single moms trying to open their, 
salon and 75 year old barbers who are just trying to run their business. Like it's just, or you could sell your, sell your services to a cul-de-sac, just be private security. And when the military comes to try and quote unquote, protect everybody, just tell them to keep rolling because you've already got, got that, you know, I think, I think private security is going to be a boom because, uh, so you can like cleanse your soul by protecting the people that really need you. And the, 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 which is exactly what you thought you were getting into when, when you had that calling. Anyway, it's all connected to this idea of virus. Uh, I mean, uh, idea as a virus or idea as a parasite that we get attached to these ideas and they might even seem pretty good and helpful for a little while. And then the evidence just isn't stacking up and you have to choose. Am I going to confront reality and talk this through and, and expose how wrong I was or how fooled I was with whatever idea? Or am I going to keep pretending and split myself off and just become an agent of this idea that's just a pure marketing campaign? That's really what it's, what it's all about. And um, in that movie we talked about last week, Inception, Leo had a really good speech his character with his wife around like fantasy versus reality. And he's saying that the, the wife of his that was attached to a fantasy is just a, just a uh, projection, just a very shallow projection compared to living a life in reality. Like there's no comparison. So we'll get into that a little bit more on an island. But when you're living in someone else's fantasy projection... Um, it's just a narcissistic projection, right? And, uh, and it just can't compete with the, with the real creation. So that comes out frequently in films, but we'll talk about that a little bit more when we talk about the island. It's kind of like stock fantasy programs that people get stuck into. I don't know exactly. I guess, men, to me, I think what's happening is men are getting distracted by just distractions. So sports, work, travel, money, and, you know, some vices like drinking and carrying on. But so men are just getting distracted. And I think the programs are being targeted at the women and kids. So the young girls are having the princess programming. The wives are having some kind of lifestyle program like, you know, about like being thin and stand up paddle boards. And, you know, it's like a travel poster that that's what life's supposed to be about. Young boys are getting the Xbox and the Grand Theft Auto and all of that. But it ends up being so divisive, like I said last week. Um, and then I think that what happens is the man comes home from the business trip or whatever, and, and, and they're just like, the, the conversation in the house is dead. It's really, really difficult. And the devices and the internet, oh my God, and Netflix, and everybody's got their separate channel and they're following the different communities. So... I think that's what's happening. I think that's what's killing uh, the incubator of Logos in the home, which is where it's supposed to be, where it's supposed to start. Um, lastly, I guess I guess I just want to talk a little bit about envy. It'll come up a little bit more in the House of Fog and Sand, but um, actually, it's some places it's called Sand and Fog, and some places it's called Fog and Sand. But anyway. I think this envy program, this, I don't know exactly how it's worked, but this is partly this destroying this apprenticeship idea. Millennials, they're all looking for a shortcut. Like, I guess 
I was Gen X. So in some ways, I'm sure a lot of people saw me as a guy looking for shortcuts because I just never wanted to climb the corporate ladder. I wanted to be completely competent. And then I just wanted that to carry. I just didn't want to do what the what appeared like the management had to do to climb the corporate ladder. But um, I think the millennials are way worse. And I think this four-hour work week concept, I'm sorry to say, I know a lot of people have like religious faith in this idea. But I think that's a program. That's a parasitic program, right? That's like you never have to learn anything. All you have to do is have an idea and then exploit like lower economies for outsourcing. And then you can play golf for the, the rest of the week. I think it's a really, really, it's a, like a war on apprenticeship and it's looking for a shortcut and it's parasitical. I mean, to try and tell people that, that, that they can create value without, with just one idea, that's it. No, no skills, no, no learning, no. <laughs> anyway, I think there's a whole generation of people that are going after that. And I think this mansplaining, <laughs> which drives me crazy, but I see it all the time, like, it's, it's like this, this idea, it's a poison idea that if somebody starts to try and explain something to you, they're mansplaining and you can just switch off, which means there's so many, there's so many concepts that are packed into that. Like, like learning is bad or learning from somebody that's more experienced is a bad thing. Um, I know there are blowhards, plenty of them, like Cliff Clavin. That, that's probably why that character was created, the ultimate mansplainer. And I know there are blowhards that go on and on about topics that people aren't that interested in. But this has nothing to do with, with generation or gender. If there's somebody that knows something that's useful to you, no matter who it is, if it's a 16-year-old boy that wants to explain cryptos, I mean, listen up. This is somebody that's got some knowledge they think is useful for you. And just judge it based on the merits of the knowledge. Like, forget about the source. So I, I, I just, I, I can't get over. I mean, the idea of reading and learning and asking, people like think that you're supposed to be acting like you know it all, all the time. And if somebody starts to know something that you don't, well, think of a reason not to listen or to like undermine or like change the topic or whatever. It's really, really unbelievable to me. Like I met two people this week, two guys. Uh, one guy was maybe 10 years older than me. One guy is like eight years younger than me, but business people that really should want to know about crypto right now. Like crypto is absolutely booming right now because crypto, the concept originally is based on what commerce is supposed to be based on, which is true value exchange, true and transparent value exchange. That's what crypto was designed for. No masters, there's no central control. So there's no, the, in the idea, there's no way to manipulate it or corrupt it. That's the idea around Bitcoin and, and the other cryptos. Um, and so the more crazy it gets out there with the authorities, the more cryptos are booming. So I just mentioned it because it's on my mind. I'm loving, I'm learning a lot about it. I'm a novice. I'm a total novice, but I've learned a lot since this whole thing started. And so I'm making small talk with these guys. And the moment I, I just say, uh, I, I'm not, I'm not trying to lecture or I'm just like, you know much about crypto? You know, we could talk about crypto sometime, you know, like that. I'm not trying to sell anything either <laughs> at all. Um, in both cases, like shut right off. 
like whatever you know about crypto, I don't want to hear it. And I definitely don't want to hear it from you. You know what I mean? <laughs> um, this E. Michael Jones, actually, he's the one I'll finish the I'll, I'll finish the podcast with at the end. But he uh, said there was a famous quote and I can't remember exactly the context, but it's a Catholic quote. It's like a woman is out. She's out on a date with a gigolo in a small town or something like that. And her mother drives by or her aunt and says, get in the car, you're embarrassing yourself. And the woman says, like this is somebody that's elite, famous in the community. The woman says, I'm sure I don't want to know about whatever it is you're talking about. <laughs> and that's that's what I'm that's what the message I'm getting from these guys. Like, even if there's something of tremendous value right at this moment that could save me and my business. I don't want to hear it, and I definitely don't want to hear it from you. And uh, so I'm like, you know, the conversation's over. Topics change, no problem. <laughs> I, it's just interesting to me right now, you know. So we're talking in the middle of nowhere here, and it's highly relevant to me what's going on. And, uh, okay, you don't want to talk about it? That's cool. Anyway, so I, this, this uh, idea of envy, and it just, and that's what mansplaining to me is. It's like, I don't care. If you know something that's extremely valuable to me right at this very moment, I'd rather destroy you than let, give you the satisfaction of teaching me something useful. It's like that, which is just unbelievably dark. So I see, I see jealousy. Jealousy often can be a motivator. To me, jealousy is sort of like that pursuit of happiness scene with Will Smith. And like he's, he's absolutely on the ropes. He's on Skid Row with his son. And like this trader pulls up in his red Ferrari and Will Smith says to him, uh, I, I, I gotta, I gotta know how you do it. I mean, where are you working? How'd you, how'd you get to this place in life? You know, he's, that to me is jealousy. He, he wants, he wants what the guy has, but he wants to work for it. And he wants to learn. Envy is, is like, I would rather destroy you than see you have something of value that I want. I'd rather destroy what you've got. And if I can't destroy what you've got, I'd rather just destroy you. That's, it's like unbelievably destructive. So to me, what I, the, when I keep seeing this millennial envy thing <laughs> where they just shut off or they're comparing themselves, well, they're small, one of those small business owners I was talking to, I was mentioning earlier, 20, uh, he's like eight years younger. You know, he's like unbelievably successful. He's had like a full career and a full global travel. And he owns like five properties in the region. And he's a good property owner. He's good in this business. And he's giving good jobs. And he takes care of his staff. And he, he's extremely laissez-faire in his management style. But he's constantly having this problem. And this is particularly pronounced, I think, with Africans. They are so proud that after like three, four days of a good job, maybe it's a couple weeks, they start to compare themselves with him. And they start, well, why does he get to sip espresso in the restaurant while I have to clean the pool? Okay. <laughs> but he, he just spent two weeks, you know, he brought in a trainer to train you how to, how to maintain the pool. Like you have a full future in this organization if you just live up to the deal that you've got. So to me, it's exactly like you're, you're just learning how to golf. And you're having the worst round of your life. You're spending all the time in sand and in rough and in trees and hacking your way up. And maybe you're on the eighth hole and you've just like 
completely blown the whole, you're having the, just the worst time. And Gary Player is on the 18th in the parallel hole. And you can see that he's had like seven birdies on the back. And he's having the best time of his life. And there's a crowd and they're applauding. And he's just, and, and you're saying like, why do you get to have all the birdies? You know, why, why, why can't I have some of the birdies? You know, instead of, <laughs> instead of like getting 30 minutes with the guy in the clubhouse to get his best tips of how he got to this place, you'd rather like tee your ball off into his fairway and see if you could screw up his round. You know what I mean? Like that's to me what's happening. You're like, it's, there's no comparison. The two tracks you've been on, the risks you've taken, the lessons you've learned, the learning you've done, the work you've done, you know? And just because you're beside one another at a certain point in time doesn't mean there's any comparison to your lot in life. So I think, and I don't know why, but it's really unbelievably consistent with millennials all over the world, this, this compare thing. I've talked about it before, the compete and compare thing. Anyhow, so let's get to the films. Um, the island, like I said, there was, there was, I'll just list the predictive programming that was in there. Some of it was in the quotes there at the beginning, but first of all, they had the most hideous thermal tattoo, which I've seen versions of what they're talking about for vaccine tracking. Very, very similar. Um, and they called it the contamination, which was the reason they convinced every, all these people to be living underground in a bunker in what somebody had created as a paradise like it was it was like paradise in a way but it was totally controlled it was some one person's idea of paradise and everyone else is under under total control which by the way is a lot like the corporate compound i came from it, it can be paradise if you've got your freedoms but the moment that you think you've lost your freedoms you're, you're locked in someone else's comfortable incarceration and i think that's the case with a lot of a lot of uh, suburban North America. So they had this thing, the proximity sensors that was talked about, the total complete monitoring and control. Um, their jobs were menial, completely not satisfying. They're just like slaves to these jobs. No, no future, no development, no individuation whatsoever. They're just human drones. And then the narcissism of the, of the overlords was like coming through with the God complex. Um, and to me, the island, I mean, that's like the, the fantasy we all have about retirement. You know, we have this picture of like a travel poster and we're going to one day sip margaritas on a, on a beach. It's, it's like that kind of a concept. But, um, and there was no contamination whatsoever. <laughs> and that was clear. So it was loosely based. The island was loosely based on Logan's Run, which I think was in the 70s, which was strongly based on Plato's Cave. So that music, the uplifting music at the very end of the intro there, that was the all of the drones coming out of the cave, basically. They were, they were finally escaping. And it all started with the one guy having a dream. So the truth was coming through to him through a dream, and then he just wouldn't stop asking questions, investigating. He just wouldn't stop. He knew there was more, but he had no idea what it, what it possibly could be because he had absolutely no imagination. Their entire imagination was programmed. So... Him, him waking up was like unprecedented. But anyway, it was quite an adventure. It was really much more visual. I had to really scour to get the, to get the more spiritual conversations, but they were in there. <laughs> they were buried, they were in there. Um, but very dark, very dark dystopian view. Um, and then in terms of the tragedy I mentioned, the House of, 
uh, sand and fog. I think that, that it's houses of fog built on sand. There's basically three main characters. Woman was central. She was the resurrection character. There was even a scene where she stepped on a nail and like the two carpenters are carrying her to exactly like a, like a passion scene, basically. So there's, there, there was no accident that there was a, there were resurrection uh, overtones. But um, I thought it was excellent. Like the Serious Man film, it was really difficult to see what was missing. Each one of them was operating in, in what seems like an excusable rationale. There wasn't any real serious bad guy, per se. The cop ended up probably being the worst because he was just clueless. He would never try and understand anything. He would never try and get the precise understanding. He would jump to conclusions, and then he constantly was thinking that force would solve the problem, that might would be right. That was constantly happening. He was a pure white knight. If a woman was being victimized, then he was going to come to the rescue, and he didn't care what the facts were. It was, that, it was very, very infantile psychology. And that's really what kept escalating things. But um, the Jennifer Connelly character, she, and to me, I think the, the fog is, it was imprecise speech. And it was, uh, you know, when they say, um, tell the truth, the whole truth, but nothing but the truth. There was lots of truth, but it wasn't the whole truth. So in each household, there were truths being just stepped over. So to me, that's what the fog was. The fog was no one was operating on the whole truth. And, uh, and the, the sand, to me, was um, uh, unearned pride, misdirected pride. So in, the case, so in the case of the cop, he was proud of just being a part of this big organization that had guns and badges. In the case of Jennifer Connolly, she was proud because her, her father worked so hard to earn this beautiful house uh, with a view of the sea. And she was also a recovered addict. So she was, she, I don't know if she was proud about that, but she was, she had reason to be pr proud about that. But she was really just proud, like it wasn't her own pride. It wasn't her own earning, but it, in, in the case of her family, she was, she was really took it, that, that, that house was like her family pride. And then the case of the Iranian family, the Persian family, the colonel, that was like super obvious. Like he was really proud of his past. He was really proud of being in the Shah's military. Um, the general visited him on holidays. They had this beautiful house with the view of the Caspian. He married this beautiful wife. Like they were completely attached to their status of a, of another time. And that's where the all the all the problems came in for for that family. So you could just see like this thing. They're having this collision. And it was no, it was really a mistake at the county that caused the whole incident. And Jennifer Connelly even tried to correct it. And she wasn't even that sympathetic. I mean, she wasn't that villainous a character. She, she was a recovered addict. She was sloppy. She just wasn't confronting reality. She was letting her mail pile up. But she dealt with the issue at the county. And she was completely under-realizing her potential. She was a housekeeper. Like, she's way under where she should be. But she's a victim of, of addiction, and she's kind of the black sheep in her family, and sort of like the, the, the family was probably always looking down on her. Her brother's attached to his image of an unbelievable sales guy, but he can't give her like 10 seconds on the phone when she's calling for help. To me, her character was the only one that was eventually saved. The son, the son of the Persian family, 
he was confronting reality. I mean, he's a really sympathetic character. He's a completely innocent victim in all this. He's being taught this Persian pride by his father, uh, which ended up causing causing the tragedy probably. But he's confronting reality. He's skateboarding and wiping out. And he's just he's just a good innocent kid confronting reality, trying to do his best and and learning from his father. And the wife is completely attached to their prestige from before and blames everybody that she's still not the princess of of Persia, basically. So you start to get sort of glimmers that Jennifer Connelly's character it has some potential. She's just in the situation and she's starting to admit to herself that it's getting out of control. Just like the AA example at the beginning. She's starting to be able to say, I've lost control of, of my life in this situation. And she's starting to call for help in different ways honestly and she gets a gas can she's almost ready to burn the Persian family's house down but after a few drinks she decides that she'd rather destroy herself than destroy their happiness so she decides that I'm sorry you know these are spoilers but these are like classic films from a decade ago so I hope <laughs> nobody's upset by by me spoiling these these themes but she Pulls, she decides she's going to pull in the driveway and commit suicide, and luckily for everybody, she, she blows it. And the Persian family is constantly taking her in and constantly rescuing her, and they see her now as an angel, like of a wounded bird that's flown into their house. They have a, some mythology around that, that that means that she's an angel coming to save them. And they keep treating her better than her own family ever did. Her brother, with a successful sale job, can't even spare 10 seconds to hear her story, or barely. Um, and she's saying, she says to him, she admits to her brother, uh, I need help, I've lost control of the situation, or something along those lines. She calls her mother, but she can't even say two words to her mother, because her mother's tone of voice is so, there's no room for reality in her mother's tone of voice. So the Persian family takes her in. And then she tries to kill herself again with a bunch of pills. And to me, that, that photo with her in the bathtub drowning, that's completely... She's having a spiritual crisis. And all she can think of is suicide to save herself. And the Persian family, you know, fittingly keeps rescuing her, keeps saving her and treating her like their own daughter. And when she wakes up the next day and the cop is involved she's she's very close to saved at this point because she's admitted to everybody like in every way she can that she lost control she's she's now embracing reality and up until now in the film she's just like a passenger in her life she's just constantly being pushed around when they came to evict her from her house she was just like this clueless doe in the headlights but now with this final morning she's actually engaging reality she's admitted to everybody she's lost total control and then the cop shows up and he says, do you really want to die? And she says, I just wanted things to change. And then he's trying to salt, you know, he's trying to be the white knight hero for her. And she's saying, let's just go. Look, let's just go. So she's realized, she has realized the truth of the situation and that the material matters. We'll, 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 we'll sort this out. Let's be there for each other. Let's forget about this. Let's let, let them have their life. But no. <laughs> the guy with the cop and the ba with the badge and the gun wants to be the white knight hero and sort this out and then things get escalated between his 
violence and the Persian pride. That's how things get escalated. And then the end of the movie, she could easily claim the house back if she wanted, which is what the whole fight was about. But she realized, she realized that's not what it's about. That she's and 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 when she gets confronted with the ultimate tragedy at the end, maybe I won't ruin that part. She takes right action immediately. She's now engaged completely in reality. She'd surrendered to the whole chaos of the whole situation. She found her own truthful speech. She found her voice. And now she's taking right action right in the moment um, to try and right the situation. So you can see that she's had this spiritual rebirth. And then she has a chance to reclaim her house, which is what the whole thing was being caused by. And she realizes it's not about the house. You know, like it's a spiritual it's a spiritual journey. Again, it was a dark lesson, and it was, to me, it was hard. It was hard to see. I definitely didn't see it. The first, I thought it was depressing. I thought it was a really good film, but I couldn't quite see all the messages in there spiritually. Um, but it's a good ride. It's a good ride and a good lesson. So I'll finish off here with the um, message from Michael Jones, the story and the experience that he had in May. I think it's unbelievably touching and fitting. And uh, we'll pick up next week. I should have an update on my own travel adventure, I'm hoping, for next week. So thanks for listening. Good to be together again. Keep the feedback coming. Take care. and as painful as it is, Logos is definitely rising. God has a plan for your life. You've probably heard me say this before. I've talked about my own life, about how getting fired from my job as an assistant professor at St. Mary's College was the best thing that ever happened to me, even though it didn't seem that way at the time. I've written a long book called Logos Rising, A History of Ultimate Reality, which claims that there is a plan for all of human history. Yet sometimes I wonder if that plan is a category of reality or a category of the mind, my mind. Thoughts like this flit in and out of my mind on walks, for example, during lockdown in April when it's raining and too cold to row, as it was on April 25th, 2020, during a walk I took in lieu of anything better to do after a day of writing and interviews with Nader in Tehran and Frody on the Faroe Islands. Walking west across the LaSalle Street Bridge over the rain-swollen St. Joseph River, I saw a black woman cross the all-but-empty street and head toward me carrying a bag with what looked like all of her worldly possessions. Half expecting her to ask me for money, I reached for my wallet, but she had other things on her mind. Do you have a phone, she asked. No, sorry, I don't, I answered. I may be the only person above the age of seven in South Bend, Indiana, who doesn't own a cell phone. I need to call my mother. Sorry, I said, preparing to step around her and walk on. I need to say goodbye, she continued, because I'm going to kill myself. At this point, she threw down her bag along with a set of keys and a crumpled up dollar bill hopped over the railing and stood on the ledge of the bridge with the mighty St. Joseph River surging beneath her feet about 50 feet below where she was standing. 
In between repeatedly asking me if I had a cell phone, she told me a number of times that she wanted to die because no one loved her. My children don't love me. My mama don't love me. Nobody loves me, she sobbed. At that point, I said, God has a plan for your life. I described that plan in detail in Logos Rising as when I quoted Dante as saying that gravity is love and that love holds the universe together. But it wasn't clear that that's what she needed to hear at a moment when gravity was going to drag her to her death the moment she stepped off the bridge. For the next 10 or 15 minutes, we argued about the meaning of that plan for the most part face-to-face -face on opposite sides of the concrete railing which was created to keep people from falling into the river. She could have jumped into the river as soon as she hopped over the railing, but she didn't because, well, taking your life is a big step. And if the old white guy was willing to talk, she was willing to justify her actions by ranting about her unhappiness. At a certain point, she decided that enough had been said. She turned around and faced the river, half bent over, arms behind her back like a swimmer ready for the start of a race. Her shirt pulled up, her cheap polyester pants drooped down, revealing the top of her stretch-mark scarred black butt, and I thought at the moment of dropping the umbrella I was holding and grabbing the waistband of her pants and trying to drag her over the railing back onto the sidewalk. Instead, I repeated what I had said a few minutes before. God has a plan for your life, and it's not throwing yourself into the river. At this point, she turned around and looked at me with a face which was a twisted mask of anger, frustration, and despair. She grabbed my umbrella and started shaking it, yanking me toward the river as I yanked her back. You don't know me, white man, she shouted. And when she did, I could see all the gaps in her mouth where teeth should have been. Judging from the absence of lines on her face, I could tell that she wasn't old, but she wasn't young anymore either, and she certainly was unhappy. At this point, the hood on her sweatshirt fell back from covering her head, revealing processed hair with streaks of gray. I could smell alcohol on her breath. The woman who was screaming at me was a total stranger, but I was familiar with her story. Bad culture led to bad outcomes. I remembered restraining Taikwisha when I was a substitute teacher in Philadelphia, trying to prevent her from kicking another girl in the head, holding her shoulders as she screamed at me, get your hands off me, you white motherfucker, as she scratched and bit my hands. I remembered interviewing Carolyn Peoples, who was serving seven consecutive life sentences at the women's prison in Dwight, Illinois, for murdering as many men, telling me that all of her fellow inmates had been sexually abused as children. I remembered Gloria Hardy's story of how her father had sexually abused her after moving the family from Mississippi into the Robert Taylor homes on the south side of Chicago. I remember walking the streets of the south side of Chicago with Ivory Hardy, the child Gloria adopted from a crack whore who was going to abort her. Trying to get back in contact with Gloria, I stumbled across Ivory's mugshot on the web. The last time I saw Ivory in person, I put my arms around her and I said, I wish I had a magic wand that could make all your problems go away. 
but I don't. The will is free, but the consequences which flow from our actions are inexorable. You don't know me, the woman shouted frantically. I want to talk to my mama. I want to say goodbye. At this point, a carload of black teenagers pulled up and stopped on the bridge. Since every black teenager owns a cell phone, the idea of calling mama was suddenly back in play. What's your mother's phone number, I asked, and after relaying it to the teenager sitting in the back passenger seat, we all waited for the call to go through so that she could say goodbye to mama before she threw herself into the river. No, man, the black kid answered. This is for real. She's standing on the bridge. She gonna throw herself into the river. Can you put her mother on the speakerphone, I asked. The black kid obliged, but neither I nor the woman on the ledge could understand what was being said. What's your mother's name, I asked. Laverne, she said. What's your name? Tanya, she said. Realizing that Mama wasn't on the line, Tanya walked east on the ledge until she came to a parapet, which placed her now about three feet away from the sidewalk, which is to say, too far away to grab. At this point, the first cop arrived. Approaching her cautiously, keeping his distance, he asked her what she needed. I can get you a place to stay, he said. I ain't homeless, she replied sullenly. And then as if realizing that the cop had distracted her from why she was there, she began sobbing, bent over again. But this time with her back to the river and her head on the concrete parapet saying, I want to die. No one loves me over and over again. As she continued sobbing, the rain started falling harder and more cop cars and an ambulance arrived. By now, there were about five cops standing near the railing, all of them out of reach, incapable of grabbing her from her perch on what must have been an increasingly slippery ledge, which was also narrower than the one she had stood on originally. The police chatter continued. Tanya continued sobbing. Sensing that we had reached an impasse, I prayed the memorare. Remember, O most gracious Virgin Mary, that never was it known that anyone who fled to thy protection was left unaided. Inspired by that confidence, I fly unto thee, O Virgin of virgins. To thee I come, before thee I stand, sinful and sorrowful. O Mother of the Word incarnate, despise not my petitions, but in thy mercy hear and answer me, and get Tanya to climb back onto the sidewalk. When I finished, Tanya looked up and then walked around the parapet and back to the wider ledge. And at this point, the cops grabbed her and hauled her over the railing and back onto the sidewalk. So if you ask me, I will say that it was my prayer that got her back. But you're free to believe that or not. Just as you're free to believe that God has a plan for your life or not. No one can force you to accept that fact but just to think through the concept of God's plan and unpack it a bit, I would have to say that if I had left the house to go on that walk five minutes sooner or later, I would not have encountered that woman and no one would have been on the bridge to talk to her for the 10 or 15 minutes it took to keep her from jumping before the cops arrived or say the prayer that allowed the cops to grab her. But I'm going to make an even bolder claim. I am going to claim that from all eternity, 
God had determined that Tanya and I would come together on that bridge over the St. Joseph River on that spring evening, and that the outcome of that encounter depended at the same time entirely on that woman's free will and my own. She freely crossed the street to talk to me. She freely got onto the ledge, and at the last moment, she freely got back off the ledge and is alive today because she didn't give in to despair. And why didn't she give in to despair? Because the grace of God is part of God's immutable plan, just as much as the prayer I prayed, which unleashed that grace in her heart, was also part of God's plan. My free will was part of the plan every bit as much as hers was, even if we were predetermined from all eternity to meet on that bridge on that rainy April evening. I could have brushed her aside out of fear or indifference after our first encounter, but I didn't because the will is free. God could have prevented her from hopping onto the ledge, but he didn't do that either because he created the will to be free, even free to do evil. So it's true. She could have jumped, but she didn't because that was God's plan, which was both predetermined and based on the free will of the two actors in that little drama in the same way that all of human history is a plan based on exactly the same mix of God's power and our free collaboration with that power. Logos is rising. God has a plan for your life.
yourself to the limit of your soul.